Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. I'm here to tell you about Bowen Branch and how you can discover this new level of softness with their iconic sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% responded that Bowen Branch sheets get softer with every wash. They source the rarest 100% organic cotton for an incredible softness to start. Then they skip the toxins and harsh chemicals for a natural feel unlike anything else. And it all comes together with their signature weave. This special design feels buttery, breathable, and unlocks new levels of softness with every wash. And they stand behind their promise of softness. With their 30-night guarantee, you can wash, style, and sleep in their sheets for an entire month. If during the 30 nights you don't love your sheets or feel them getting softer and softer, you can send them right back, no questions asked. So head to bowlandbranch.com for 15% off your first order with code RESTFUL15. That's B-O-L-L and branch.com. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 244, Gambit, Part 1, and Gambit, Part 2. Welcome into Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Ken Ray. Each week, we watch an episode of Star Trek or two, taking them apart for messages, morals, and meanings, and seeing whether all of it stands the test of time. This week... Gambit Part 1, the first part of the Gambit story arc, followed by Gambit Part 2, the second part, the Gambit story arc. I've got trivia coming up in a moment, but first... But now, I'm going to tell you how to get in touch with us. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. So you say say the first part, uh, the Gambit Part Mm 1, is part one of the story. Right, yeah, and then and then you you immediately segue into if you want the second part of the arc, mm-hmm. that'd be hold on, uh, that'd be Gambit Part Two. Oh, very good. You've you've watched ahead. <laughs> I can tell. Mm-hmm. There's got to be more trivia than that, though, John. Oh well, I'll see what I can dig up for you. Part one was written by Naren Shankar from a story by Christopher Hatton and Naren Shankar. Now, Christopher was in college at the time, and he had submitted his story on spec last season. It took some time to bubble up, and one of the objections was that we're dealing with space pirates, which Gene Roddenberry back in the day had said, no, no stories that have to do with space pirates. Now, this is Christopher's first professional credit as a writer. In the years since then, he has written, produced, and directed a handful of mostly sci-fi genre films. He does come back to Trek with one more writing credit later on this season. Part one is directed by Peter Lauritsen. Remember that Peter was a producer for the entire run of Next Gen, and his directorial debut was The Inner Light. This is his second and final directorial job on Next Gen, but we will see his name again. With part two, the story is still by Naren Shankar, but the script was written by Ronald D. Moore. And it might be worth pointing out here that the more hands the script passed through, there might have been some 
frustrations raised. Uh, Brandon Braga objected to this story. Ronald Moore felt like it wasn't working and he was kind of lost with part two. This is one of those times when Rick Berman pulled out that bandana and covered the eyes on the bust of Gene Roddenberry that he kept on his desk. Good call. Yeah, Mike. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Might come back to that a little later. Hey, hey, I'm spoilers. sorry. It's a little early. Okay. I apologize. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I assumed you meant that the, he was dusting it. No, mm-hmm. he was. He, oh, was. Okay. he was cleaning right, it up. Then. Yeah, that's what I that's what I mean. Mm-hmm. Part two is directed by Alexander Singer. We last saw his work as director on Descent Part Two. Hmm. It's probably not too hard to tell here that the bridge on Baran's ship is indeed a redress of the Enterprise Battle Bridge, which is a redress of the refit Enterprise 1701 bridge, which was then rebuilt after Star Trek V. And yeah, you get the picture. There's a lot of recycling that goes on with sets like that. Uh, Let's see here. Quote, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. There's an alert for all you Sir Walter Scott fans. That is from his 1808 epic poem, Marmion. Let's see, we have the shuttle Justman making a reappearance in the background of the hangar bay. Oh, and uh, speaking of returning props, hello again to the Veron T Disruptor. A nice shot of that toward the end of part two. Now, there are deleted scenes from part one and part two on the Blu-ray. From part one, we would have Deanna having a little more fun in the bar in that opening scene. She's got this very provocative line, what if I like danger? And we also have a scene with Beverly, her analysis of Picard's DNA. And I kind of wish we'd kept that in there. She looks really shattered during the whole thing. We have an extended scene with Uranic while Riker is interrogating him. And we have an extended scene with Picard slash Galen, just as Baran gives the order to destroy the Starfleet outpost. More deleted scenes from part two, uh, Riker stalling in Baran's ship. But there is a nice moment where Baran orders Riker to go wake up Galen, which kind of leads to why they would have any time alone at all. Nice to have that in there. And we have a longer moment when Baran plots after discovering that the artifact is on the Enterprise. I really recommend to people, if you've got the Blu-rays, if you haven't checked them out, um, watch the extended and deleted scenes. Uh, Not just because you get a little extra taste of, you know, character moments in there. But what I really like is that it shows you how a TV show is put together. Uh, Somebody uh, that I once, I think it was somebody from Star Trek that I was talking to, They really described it saying that film is a director's medium, TV is an editor's medium slash producer's medium. And you can really see all these little moments that are just sliced out, even for a few seconds of time, um, that don't fundamentally change the moments in a scene. But you can tell, aha, I guess you could slice that out, jump to the next line, and it still makes perfect sense. So do check those out if you haven't yet. We have a lot of guest stars in this episode. We have a brief scene with Admiral Chicote. No, do not confuse him with Chicote, who may be a character we get to later on. Um, and this Chicote, he will show up again uh, because in air date order, he has already shown up on Deep Space Nine. That role is played by Bruce Gray. Now, that huge Klingon that we meet in part two, Coral, was played by James Worthy, standing at six foot nine. He played for the L.A. Lakers. Richard Lynch is Arctus Baran. Now, he is a very recognizable character actor who has been at it since the late 60s. He's been in a ton of TV shows. He was in Rob Zombie's version of Halloween. And I will, of course, 
remember him from the Vegas in Space episode of Buck Rogers in the 25th century. I got to do a shout out here, too. Mm-hmm. Go do it. Do it. There yeah. is a horrible, horrible movie. I'm already intrigued. Called yes. Werewolf. And it's so mm-hmm. bad that Mystery Science Theater 3000 parodied it. Mm-hmm. So he's actually in one of my favorite episodes of Mystery Science Theater 3000. Fantastic. And for anybody who's seen the Werewolf episode, every time Baran came on screen, I just wanted to yell, Grandma! <laughs> Okay. And those of you who've seen it will know exactly why. All right. Nice. We have Julie Caitlin Brown, who is most recognizable from her role as Natoth on Babylon 5. She appears here as Vicor. And right around the same time, a little bit before, she was making a guest appearance on Deep Space Nine. Alan Altschuld plays Uranic, and he has a handful of professional credits, his very first gig being a small role in the 1986 Tom Hanks movie The Money Pit, and he also shows up in the 2005 remake of The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Cameron Thor plays Narek, and this is his only Trek appearance, but he also shows up in other genre fare like Sequest 2032, and he had a small role in Jurassic Park. We have a new member of the Enterprise crew here that gets a pretty good amount of screen time. That's Ensign Giusti, played here by Sabrina LeBeouf. And yes, if that name sounds familiar, it's because she had just come off a very high-profile gig as Sandra Huxtable in The Cosby Show. Finally, Robin Curtis as Talera. Robin really needs no introduction to our audience, in addition to the rest of her body of work. She played Savick in Star Trek III and Star Trek IV. This is her final Trek appearance. Stop me if you have heard this one. A first officer, a security chief, a doctor, and a ship's counselor walk into a bar. Prologue. Some of our crew are in a bar. Not a nice one like Ten Ford, but more of a wretched hive. There are aliens, there is scum, there is probably villainy. As Deanna Troy, Dr. Crusher, Riker, and Worf ask questions, there's a lot of resistance from the patrons who are being interrogated. The questions go something like, have you seen a guy, human, no hair on his head? And the answers are evasive, something like, I really shouldn't talk about this. It sure would be helpful to have an Iridian around about now, those aliens who deal in information. Hey, there's one. Uranic. He saw what happened. The person in question, who very much meets Picard's description, was there a few weeks ago. He was sitting with a bunch of dangerous-looking lowlifes, and things got heated. A fight broke out. Picard was pushed to a wall. Beverly confirms she's finding human cells and fibers from Starfleet clothing. It didn't end there, though. The alien says one of those people at the table pulled a weapon and vaporized that man. Act 1. Sad days on the Enterprise. Picard is dead, confirmed by a DNA sample taken by Dr. Crusher, and Riker is now acting captain. But even he's having a hard time with it, clearly upset. He doesn't even want to attend the memorial Deanna's putting together. There are a lot of hurt feelings, a lot of lashing out. Naturally, Riker is determined to do whatever he can to get to the bottom of this, seeking justice wherever that may take him. Even Starfleet agrees with him. Riker gets a go-ahead to figure out who did it. Uranic, the alien from the bar, had asked for passage on the Enterprise, and he's got it. But now Riker is pressing him for a bit more information, like who specifically killed Picard. 
And where are they? Uranix says he wants a shuttle in return for information, but Riker has a counteroffer. How about he doesn't turn him in for the twelve crimes outstanding with the Klingon authorities? Oh, well, in that case, Uranic is pretty sure it was a mercenary group, and they were headed to the Baratus, not a cheese, system. Act 2. There's no life on Baratus 3, but there are random energy outbursts. Riker will beam down along with an away team, though Data reminds Riker, as Riker would have with Picard, that the captain's place is on the bridge. Yeah, but no, Riker is going. The away team doesn't find anybody there, and what's around is ancient ruins, but there's evidence of a recent impact in the ground as well as microcrystalline damage consistent with what Dr. Crusher scanned in the bar. Worf spots a damaged artifact, and then before you can say gold shirts die first, a phaser shot takes out a random crewman. Everyone on the away team dives recover from the firefight, and their communicators are being jammed. No way the Enterprise can bring them back up safely. In the chaos, Riker is knocked unconscious, and the three attackers run to his body, then they all beam up, taking Riker with them. Act 3. Beamed up to where? Well, there was another ship in orbit of Baratus 3, but the Enterprise only just now detected it, and too late, that little ship is coming in for the attack. It's not such a big deal, though. The Enterprise is bigger, faster, and stronger. Chasing that little ship is no prob... Uh... uh Uh-oh. They're gone. But how? That little ship has been making a nuisance of itself in a lot of other places, and it's kind of designed for stealth. Geordi might be able to change up sensors to find it, but even that is a long shot. Data, now in command, really doesn't have that many options, even though Worf is absolutely ready to chase what exactly, where exactly. New away teams will go back to the surface of Baratus 3 to figure out if there are any more clues to what happened there. On that nasty little alien vessel, the engines are having a problem. That sudden boost did a number on their warp system, but in the meantime, the captain of that ship, Arctus Baran, is interrogating Riker. And you know how this is going. Riker is all smug with stories of a scientific expedition, but Baran has a short fuse. He activates an implant in Riker's neck, which causes pain. Yeah, the remote is on Baron's belt, and he can apply how little or how much pain he wants to dole out. This is how he instills discipline and fear in his crew, so, you know, a little less lip from Riker. So what do they do? Keep Riker around? Kill him? Ransom him off? Starfleet won't really negotiate. Crew pipes up from their own opinions. There's Talera, the Romulan, Vicor, Narek, and hmm... Smooth-headed human? English accent? Yeah, that guy. Picard. He's not dressed like Picard, but it is Picard. And he surprised Riker by voting that they should kill him right here, right now. Act 4. Picard is under the assumed name Galen, and here he spits out some pretty unflattering things about Riker. History of insubordination, not a good officer. This only seems to intrigue Baran more. The debate can't continue much longer, though. There's a major problem with the warp engine's intermix chamber. This is really bad. Really. The flow regulator is frozen, and that sounds like something Riker might be able to fix. At least that information was lobbed from Galen right his way. With permission, Riker jumps into action, and yep, he saves them all. Easy peasy. Guess he'll live to see another day. Back on Baratus 3, it's one archaeological site after another, but the artifacts that should be there have been stolen, 
and it appears to be the work of Romulans? But why? Well, Baratus III was inhabited millennia ago by the Debrun, an ancient offshoot of the Romulans, so something with that? To gather a bit more evidence, Data wants to check out other sites with Romulan ruins in the sector. Calder II is nearby and seems like a good next target. It has a Starfleet science outpost and a lot of hanging sculptures. The Enterprise will send a message to be on the lookout for the alien vessel, but to delay them if they should show up. On that ship, Riker finally gets a face-to-face in private with Picard. Here's what happened. Picard had been studying ancient ruins only to find that the artifacts had been clumsily stolen. He wanted to find out by whom, track that group to a bar, and then after being too nosy, they vaporized him with a weapon that is actually an activator for a transporter. With Picard captured, they could interrogate him to find out what he knew. Only Picard slipped into character as Galen, himself a smuggler. What he has found out is that they are searching very specifically for Romulan artifacts with a particular particle signature. He doesn't know why yet, but here's what they can do. Riker can cozy up to Baran. After all, Picard did just set him up for that engine failure to make Riker look good. When Baran enters the room, Galen gives Riker a good strike, knocking him out of his chair, and for good measure, a kick in the ribs on his way out. Act 5, just as predicted, Baran heads toward Calder 2, and he's got a plan to just wipe out the Starfleet outpost and take the artifacts he wants. Galen pipes up that maybe they should use Riker to talk their way past security, and when the shields are down, beam up what they want much easier. On his own, Picard is scanning some of those stolen artifacts, still no hits with that particle Baran is looking for. While working, the Romulan Tolera walks in. She chides him a bit about Baran's demands of his work, and Galen just shoots back that he's indispensable to the mission. Maybe if he knew what was really going on, that might be helpful. Nope. Talera isn't going to budge. He also makes it known that he thinks Baran is a poor leader, relying only on the fear from those painful implants. You know, someone else could do a better job as leader. Nah, mutiny is probably a bad idea, and besides, Talera is really just in it for herself even if she has to take out Galen. Arriving now at Calder 2, Riker tries to sweet-talk his way over the comms system. The science outpost isn't going to budge either, so Bran gives the order to destroy it. Galen jumps up that the better thing to do is destroy their shield generators. First shot is a success. They are able to beam up some of those artifacts. The shields go back up, though, and Bran really just wants the whole thing destroyed. Before buttons can be pushed, though, the Enterprise swoops in and opens fire. There's damage, and Data, now having the upper hand, tells Baran to prepare to be boarded. Baran, though, has another idea. He grabs Riker and demands that he call off the Enterprise. And wouldn't you know it, much to Data's and everyone else's surprise, Riker orders that the Enterprise withdraw. So he does. Now, in a quick way to save face, Riker says he'll set up a low-level comm link which will allow him to deactivate the Enterprise's shields. Baran allows it, and in a version of he knows that they know that he knows that wouldn't work anyway, Data actually orders that Worf lower their shields. He does, and with Baran's order, Galen opens fire. Part 2. Prologue. Data is really putting on a good show. Sure, both nacelles have been hit, but by pretty puny weapons. 
In order to make it look worse, they cut power to some systems, all while still firing back. The hits on Baran's ship are a little more serious, though. He will have to retreat, or else he'll be destroyed. Worf is ready to let them have it, but Data says no. Let them go. Act 1, none of that sat well with Worf, especially since two other ships are now going to try to intercept at the other planets if the mercenary ship attacks there. The Enterprise will sit tight and try to unravel the rest of the mystery. Data is under the impression that Riker wanted to be let go, and indeed, there was a hidden code in that comm signal. Now it's just a matter of trying to figure that out, too. Baran's ship is in bad shape. A few hours of repair will be necessary. Riker gets some praise, though. He saved them all. But Galen calls him out for betraying his friends. Riker, doing the right thing, gets up from his seat and clocks Galen right in the face. An opportune time for Galen to then sulk off to do more work on the artifacts. As he's doing that, Talera stops by again, and she's just a little bit suspicious. He didn't finish off the Enterprise with their weapons when they had the chance, and... Why is it that he keeps antagonizing Riker if it will only tee off Baran? Look, Galen says, he just wants to work and, well, what do you know? One of these samples actually has a particle match at long last. Given the good news, Baran celebrates with a drink and explains to Riker that their mission is now at least half over. And when it does end, he'll kill Galen. And what's better than that? Baran is offering Riker a job, maybe, or at least a piece of the action going forward. He needs Riker to do one thing, though. Befriend Galen, for now at least. Since he might be trying to mutiny, Baran would like to know who else is on that side. Oh, and one last thing. Baran wants Riker to kill Galen. So... Cool? Act 2. About that hidden message in Riker's signal to the Enterprise... It's coordinates to the Hyralon sector, and it's time for the Enterprise to step on it to get there. Not a moment too soon for a very anxious wharf. He even lets out an audible, finally, when Data gives the order. About that. Time for a little android to cling on chat in the ready room. Data lays down the law. You do not contradict or editorialize on the captain's orders in front of the crew. Got it? If not, you can be bumped back down to tactical instead of your cushy first officer job now. Worf gets it. Won't happen again. And he's sorry that he may have hurt their friendship in the process. But we're still friends, right? Ugh, Klingon drama. Aboard Baran's ship, Riker and Picard have another chance to talk alone. Riker explains that Baran wants him to kill any mutineers, so he wants him to get close to Galen. But what about the mission at hand? Well... Riker knows that they're supposed to rendezvous with a Klingon ship in the Hyralon sector to retrieve another artifact. Picard, meanwhile, has figured out that the artifact they have isn't Romulan, it's Vulcan. Galen goes about rounding up the mutineers. Narek is out, at least he doesn't think Galen should be their new leader. He thinks Talera might be a better choice. And speak of the devil, here she comes now, and she's got a gun. Act 3 she found the message he actually sent to the Enterprise while Riker was sending his command codes. The jig is up. Don't feel bad, though. Her real name is T'Pal. Nope, not that one. And she's a member of that secret Vulcan spy network called the Vashar. She's there to investigate the threat of these artifacts leading to a weapon. 
It's in Vulcan's interest, since there is an extremely xenophobic faction there trying to remove Vulcan from all outside contact. What's more, eradicating any alien presence on Vulcan. The weapon is the Stone of Gaul, and it's a psionic resonator. In other words, it amplifies thoughts and is extraordinarily powerful. The two parts of it were broken up ages ago, and one part thought destroyed. When the other part was stolen from a Vulcan museum, the hunt was on for others to find that other piece. Her mission is to stop the pieces of the weapon from being rejoined. And if she has to destroy Baran's ship and everyone on it to do so, then she will. Arriving at the Hyralon coordinates, the Enterprise finds a Klingon ship with a sole inhabitant, Coral. As far as Klingons go, this one is... surly. Not too talkative. Kind of a pill. Data doesn't get the lack of friendliness, but Worf has a suggestion. How about they conduct a health inspection of his shuttle? Yeah, it's bending the rules a little, but Data's on board with it. They bring this Klingon shuttle into the hangar bay, and my oh my, isn't Corral a giant of a man even by Klingon standards? Before being detained, though, Corral got out a message to Baran's ship. Now that gives Baran an interesting problem. The second artifact is actually on board the Enterprise now, so how to get it? Galen insinuates that Riker sent a message to the Enterprise to let them know about the rendezvous, and Baran has something very bold in mind, boarding the Enterprise and taking the artifact. Riker just might be the right candidate. Still, it is his old ship. Would he betray Baran? Easy solution. He'll send Galen and Riker aboard the Enterprise with an armed landing party, and somewhere in Picard's mind he must be thinking, please don't throw me in the briar patch. Only Baran has an extra word or two with Riker. Remember, he can kill Riker with that little implant on his neck, and oh yeah, when you're done, kill Galen. Act 4. While Data and Troy are keeping Corral occupied, Worf and Dr. Crusher are inspecting his shuttle. Just then, Riker, Galen, and the landing party beam in and take the shuttle bay by force, stunning Worf and Crusher in the process. There's no artifact on board, so they beam into the conference room and take it from Corral directly. Deanna and Data are a bit shocked, of course, and Data begins to tell Riker about the charges he'll face. That opportunity creates another one as Riker draws his weapon to fire on Galen, but Galen fires back, knocking Riker out. He's dead, they proclaim, and the rest of the landing party beam back to Baran's ship. Of course Riker isn't dead. With the rest out of the way, now he can get some medical attention and shake off the stun. Baran is ready to go. He's got the artifacts he needs, but Galen has other plans. He spins what happened as Riker being disloyal and convincing the others that he was acting under Baran's orders. He would have them all killed, but now it's mutiny time. So who will take over from Baran? Everyone else is on Galen's side now. But Baran has one last grab at power. He's got the agonizer, I mean the, the remote thingy, and he points it toward Galen, threatening to kill him. Act 5. Uh, what's that? Baran drops to the floor in pain and dies? Clever Galen, he switched the transponder codes or something, sometime, somehow, I guess. Now with Galen in charge, the mercenaries are on the way to their rendezvous. 
Riker, back in command of the Enterprise, jumps on the line with Satok of Vulcan security just to let him know that the mercenary ship is probably headed to Vulcan, probably carrying that weapon, and please don't blast it out of the sky because T'Pol is on board undercover. Cool. Cool. And who was this T'Pol again? Because we don't have an operative on board a mercenary ship? Oh... Back on that ship, Picard is about to put those pieces together too, literally and figuratively. He figures out that the two pieces are supposed to go to the underground Takarath Sanctuary on Vulcan. He also figures out that the ancient Vulcan glyphs are incomplete, and maybe, just maybe, the Vulcan on board can offer some insight. She's a little testy, a little uninterested, and Picard lets her know that he took the precaution of having the Enterprise contact the Vulcan government, just for their own safety, of course. He'd like to join her when they arrive, but she says, uh, no, it's a Vulcan thing you wouldn't understand. When they arrive at Vulcan, Galen reveals to the rest of the crew that there is no reward. Talara is smuggling a weapon and has no intention of helping them. Oh yeah, she says. Well, Galen isn't Galen. He's a Starfleet officer. The only compromise here is that Talera beams down to the surface with the weapon and with Narek and Vicor and Picard as a hostage, just in case. When they arrive in the caves, the mercenaries find, well, not as much of a reward as they expected. Just as you might suspect, Talera is pretty dismissive of their needs and has a go with the new weapon as soon as they start to balk. The psionic resonator manifests, uh, well, it's sort of uh, an ominous blob that entombs and devours Neric and Vicor. Talera turns toward Picard, who is just out of reach of a weapon. She urges him to pick it up. He says that the Federation won't let any of this stand, but he's not getting it. This isn't a conventional weapon to be fought with conventional means. An armed landing party from the Enterprise beams in, but Picard orders them to drop their weapons and not make any, not even think any, aggressive or violent actions. I'm looking at you, Mr. Worf. Since a resonator amplifies violent thought and uses that against the enemy, they can stop it. Picard explains a little more. That third glyph that was missing on the weapon, that one that was supposed to sit between war and death, was peace. It's what the Vulcans realized thousands of years ago, that they could bring their own peace, and in doing so make the weapon useless. Talera tries and fails to use it against the Enterprise crew who have been ordered to wipe away any violent thoughts. Talera goes into custody. The separationist will be dealt with, we assume, peaceably by the Vulcan authorities. The resonator will be destroyed. Back home on the Enterprise, well, Picard is legally dead and Riker was a renegade for a brief time and technically should be facing a number of charges. <laughs> All fun and games until Data starts escorting Riker to the brig. The end. Boy, gallstones, huh? <laughs> Stone of gall. Stone of gall. Yeah, they're no joke. They really aren't. No. Uh, so, so let me see if I understand. This was a weapon that was used thousands of years ago. Yep. And the weapon was constructed in a way that would tell you how to defeat the weapon. Hmm. Well, I, hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I <laughs> guess right. so. Because I didn't realize that until what you were doing right at the end there, when you're like, oh, look, and it's this, and it's this, and it shows that this is how the weapon can be defeated. And it's like, and we're just going to put that right on the weapon that we're using to try to, you know, 
take over the world or beat up other people or whatever it is. Hmm. I mean, maybe yeah. it's like making the safety, you know, red Huge. or orange yeah. on a gun, right? Yeah. Or gigantic. Just right? giant. And, and put it right in front of the trigger. Yeah. Just, <laughs> just, just <laughs> exactly. I keep hitting the safety. Yeah. Wrap the whole thing in bubble wrap and, uh, and mm-hmm. call it good. Yeah. Yep. Struck me as kind of odd. All right. So uh, we had this happen before with Riker. Um, Riker ends up taking over control of the Enterprise for some reason. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah, captain's missing. Maybe it was. Um, it might. It might be um, when when he became locutus. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. But he says so. Riker, you know, they say, well, we need to do this. We need to do this. And Riker says, make it so. Yeah. Oh. And yeah. both you and I were kind of like annoyed because it feels like he should have his own catchphrase. Like you know, I think we said get her done or do it. Do it up. I believe yeah. were a couple that we thought of. Uh, I think get it. I think just just get it was get one it. of them. I think Maybe. Get it was one of them too. That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so Data now is in charge of the Enterprise because you know mm-hmm. almost everybody has left. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, All right, and and they say, well, we need to do this. We need to do this. And Data says, make it so. And I again think he needs to have his own catchphrase. Mm. So I got okay. a couple. I've like, got a couple. Okay. Um, right. Execute command function because that's very you know. Beep board, yeah. beep board, you know, kind of right, thing. Right, right. I like it. Get fully functional on that. Oh, oh, yeah. You're yeah. going to something that up, if you know what I'm saying. That would be and, good uh, on a shirt. Yeah, yeah it would. Mm-hmm. And like a boss. Just because I think I, I like like a boss. It's got nothing to do with data, but it's one of my, my personal favorites. I'm surprised you didn't go with something like, uh, you know, get Positronit. That's not good. But it's no. not bad. Yeah, no. no it's, it's a, you know, it's it's a joke that Data would like. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Even though he, he doesn't understand jokes. Right, you know? but he would understand that he should laugh at that point, so he might go ahead and try. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hey, uh, do you remember, oh gosh, so, so long ago when we were talking about Jeremy Astor and, mm. well, all the other times that the Enterprise crew is just supposed to be cool with death because, hey, it's uh, it's just a part of life. You need um, to remind people really quickly, Jeremy Astor was like the 10-year-old whose mom died and everybody yeah. was like, dude, deal. Yeah, right. Well, actually, right. it was Gene Roddenberry who said, it was no, Gene the future, right, the future is going to be yeah. such a thing that like kids won't even miss their parents if they die in a fire. It'll, mm-hmm. it'll be fine because everybody else will take care of them. So that's yeah. who that that's who that was, and your your point bringing him up again, bringing up that painful painful memory. Yes, yeah, because when when everybody thinks that Picard is dead, mm-hmm. man, does it hurt! It, it hurts big time, and that's one of the biggest, most sort of dramatic outbursts that we see between Riker and Troy. Absolutely, the right people to have that conversation, mm-hmm. um, but th- that was that was a big outburst, and Riker doesn't want the wound to heal he needs his pain he he really he needs it oh yes yeah yeah Man. he is absolutely tng's kirk and and mm-hmm. th- at least in this in this particular episode there are ways he's mm-hmm. not kirk but you know everybody's always said that he was sort of tng's answer to kirk mm-hmm. and uh, and boy he's tng's echo to kirk in this yeah. one yeah, yeah. I tell you what I found myself wondering, because he does that whole thing, right? And he's like, mm-hmm. you know, so he died in the bar fight, and it's sense- senseless, and somebody has to pay. And I thought, if they hadn't found Picard, would Riker be Batman? Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Is that like, well. It's like the Enterprise, yeah. like his Batmobile from, and his Batcave from now on. Yeah. He's just like, you know, flying around, righting wrongs. Actually, be more like Knight Rider, now that I think about it. Mm-hmm. Except I don't know what drove Michael Knight, because I didn't watch that show. Mm-hmm. Um, I do love the fact that uh, the Enterprise's reputation sort of precedes itself, I think. Mm-hmm. 
Uranic knows currency of the realm, at least aboard the Enterprise, is a shuttlecraft. <laughs> yeah. You get one. If you're yeah. on the Enterprise, the quickest way off is to say, can I please have a shuttle? Nine times out of ten. Nine times out of ten, that's going to work. Sadly for Uranic, he hit Riker on a bad day. <laughs> right. right. If he had waited till Picard was back and then said, hey, by the way, you think I could have like one of those four shuttle that you have? I think Riker would be like, absolutely. Take your pick. Take the Jessman. You know, again, in a, in a post-scarcity society, I, I guess what happens if we're trying to see this as how the future will play out. Shuttles are first when mm-hmm. you get to a post-scarcity society. You know, we're going to worry about everything else, food, clothing, shelter, but it looks like everybody gets a shuttle. So just hang on a few hundred more years. Yeah. Go get that shuttle. Yep. Well, housing may be difficult in the 24th century, but as long as people can drive around, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, good. <laughs> park good. someplace, sleep in the shuttle, mm-hmm. get up the next day. Who knows where you live? You know, mm-hmm. you live on the Justman. Um, there was one other thing about Uranic that I wondered about. Um, he said, wait, don't turn me over the Klingons. Why don't you send me to a Federation rehabilitation colony? <laughs> right. Which we were horrified. You and I were horrified watching Space Seed that there were Federation rehabilitation colonies. Like I listened to that episode about a month ago, the one that we yeah. did. I think because I was, yeah. I don't know, because I did. Okay. And we were both like, what the heck? What is that? That's still a thing? And and why would that be a waste to do for Khan? And what's actually going on there? Yeah. And now flash forward 80 years, and apparently that's still the Federation's dirty little secret. Well, yeah, but, but look, you, you got people like Dr. Tristan Adams, who, mm-hmm. uh, who still need to work. You've got, uh, you go to uh, Elba 2, where you've got uh, Lord Garth. Uh, Lord Garth. You know, <laughs> yeah. Just, you know, th- these people need help. Yeah. Need help, so. Well, okay, but what's going on there is what I'm saying. Because okay, you say Dr. Tristan Adams still needs work, but mm-hmm. I think Dr. Tristan Adams actually needed to go to a Federation rehabilitation colony after the work he was doing. That's so meta. Are you saying you think that there's still a tantalus device out there someplace? Oh, maybe, dude. Hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. dude. Mm-hmm. Don't mm-hmm. even. That's terrible. No. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We'll talk about something different. All right. So uh, it's redundant, obviously, every time that we say that Patrick Stewart is a great actor and great in a scene. I really like the subtle change of his tough guy voice Hmm. when he's Galen. It's just fun. It's subtle. It's not too over the top, but it's nice to see him do that. Um, Oh, let's see. We have a mention of uh, Minos Corva. So the Cardassian incident, and that was from Chain of Command Part 2. That was when Jellicoe was in command of the Enterprise. When uh, so. when Riker was relieved of duty. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, we have a mention of Riker getting out of a court-martial. Hmm. Oh, oh, oh. Okay. Mm-hmm. So forgive me, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break the timeline by making this a real-time thing. Okay. Mm-hmm. As people probably listen to this, we haven't done a regular episode in a week or two. Okay, if they're listening mm-hmm. as we release. Mm-hmm. And the whole reason I bring mm-hmm. that up is because on the last episode, I said, who is it among senior staff that should still have their job? And I said, I think the only one is, I think the only two are Riker and Troy. Somebody wrote to us, by the way, because we went through everything that, you know, happened. Uh, Beverly stole a shuttle and, you know, flew it into the sun. Data took over mm-hmm. the ship a million times. Worf killed a guy, like, in front mm-hmm. of people. Um, Riker tried to kidnap uh, his androgynous girlfriend from that planet Mm -hmm. he was kind of allowed to but kidnapping is still a kidnapping offense right oh Oh, sure sure that is the kind of thing that might have gotten him bounced from starfleet 
you know, yeah. on another show. <laughs> Sorry, well, somebody somebody on Twitter brought that up, and I wanted to go ahead and acknowledge it because yeah, mm-hmm. um, because yeah. So sorry. No, that's yeah. They, they basically what what we're saying is that they have all avoided the kind of punishment that, that in the real world <laughs> would absolutely end all of their careers. I don't even think it's fair to say they avoided it. I mean, it just didn't. It just didn't affect them, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> Again, yeah. There you go. There you had go. Barkley like, oh, done it's... any of those things. Had Barkley done well, no. In fairness, though, Barkley did interface with the Enterprise on the holodeck, and yeah, he still ended up getting having a job. Which kind of funny though that uh, Picard would bring it up like that because it's sort of like it's sort of like saying to Riker, like, "I remember the things you've done." I know, right? (laughs) Right? It's kind of crazy (laughs) to wonder, like, once they started slugging each other, that it wasn't like like that scene in um in uh, a Christmas story where you know Dill hits his little friend. Right. Scott, excuse me, Scott Farkas hits Dill, yeah. and then Dill hits Scott Farkas back a little harder, and then Scott Farkas hits him back harder still. It's really a wonder that we didn't end up with like a um, like a Trouble with Tribbles-style fight just between Riker and Picard in this episode. By the way, I'd be remiss if I didn't say uh, A Christmas Story starring mm-hmm. Darren McGavin, who is the star <laughs> of Kolchak. Oh, the Night man. Stalker. We are reaching so far back in so many ways in you're this welcome. episode. Yeah, we should, we should go welcome. ahead probably and push forward, though, I guess. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, let's see. The artifacts that they're after. I was trying to put this together in my head. The artifacts are at least a couple of thousand years old. Mm-hmm. Now, these other races are offshoots of the Romulans. Exactly how long have they had space travel? I mean, the, the Vulcans are in there, too. There are offshoots of the Romulans, or the Romulans are offshoots of the Vulcans. They're, they're all related, you know, way, way, way back. Yeah. But all the technology is relatively on par. Yeah, I mean, we, we can definitely make the argument that the Romulans have very advanced weapons, very advanced ships, and maybe even the Vulcans, the more we learn about them in the future, more advanced than, say, just your run-of-the-mill Federation starship. Mm-hmm. Um, but... If we're talking about a spread of a couple of thousand years that these people have spread out across the galaxy, mm-hmm. shouldn't they be just incredibly advanced by a long shot? I'm talking like the end of the movie AI with these super advanced AI that are almost unrecognizable as machines. Hmm. You know, you raise a good point because we know that the Romulans and the Vulcans were the same people mm-hmm. thousands of years ago. Yeah. How'd they end up on a different planet? Thousands of years ago. Huh. Yeah. Wow. You just messed with my head. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. I'm, I'm cool with it. I like, I, I like stuff like that that messes with my head. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll find out one day. Uh, exactly how long has Picard been missing? So they said weeks. Right? Yes. Yeah. We, we are spending way more time with this than we were with, like, uh, Jordy's mom. I mean, the USS Hera. So, okay, remember last week on the show, I said something about how, yeah, everybody's sort of a little bit dismissive of Jordy's desire to figure this out. If there is something to figure out, we're talking about his mom. We're also talking about a whole ship with a whole crew on that ship. And the Admiral's like, yeah, well, we've been at it three days. Whoo, boy, can't do that. In this episode, you've got the Enterprise with a crew of a thousand and Admiral Chakotay is saying to Riker, like, oh, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm canceling anything on your schedule right now. You take as much time. You take all these resources. You take the Enterprise. You go figure this out. And you say the writers had a problem with this episode, do you? 
Mm, maybe. Maybe mm. just a little bit. Huh. Yeah. All right. In the future, good thing to know that there is no Google reverse image search. Um, because I, I like that Picard is able to very fully take on this character of Galen. Yeah. Where pretty much in the year that we're recording this episode, you could take a picture of Picard as Galen and say, Google, who is this? And then just let Google do its thing. Hey, you know, I I don't think you actually mentioned this in this episode. Uh, Galen, of course, he's named himself after his archaeology professor. Uh, That's right. Yeah. 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 Who was the one who brought us the Kerlin Nascos, which was Mm -hmm. one of my favorite things ever on Star Trek ever. Well, it's either that or he's a big fan of Planet of the Apes. So, Galen? Yeah. I don't remember Galen from Planet of the Apes, but we can't. We have so many other podcasts to do before we get to that. We do. We really do. Hey, uh, cool piece of technology, the transporter gun. This mm-hmm. is totally what I want now out of all Star Trek technology. I want the transporter gun. Oh, okay. I thought Amazing. you just meant you, like, you wanted all the Star Trek technology to be like three things in one or two things in one. No, no, no. A- out of everything that they have shown on Star Trek as technology, I think the transporter gun, that is now at the top of my list. Yeah. You see, I got a problem with the transporter gun, though, because it looks like a gun. Yeah, well, <laughs> right. It so does. then, like, so then, like, yeah. you know, somebody's going to pick it up and be like, "Okay, I'm going to transport you," and you're going to be like, "Oh, wait, 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 wait. Are you sure? <laughs> can you so double, Can you transport that chair first, please? <laughs> just, just so I can be certain. Yeah. Hey, uh, what exactly is the profit for Baran? Um, where I'm just going to go with like gold pressed latinum because he he does say to Riker. That he'll have a very wealthy and long life, far mm-hmm. from the Federation. Well, also, who does Baran think he's working for? Because this whole mm-hmm. thing's being run by Tal... Uh, Tal- I can't remember her name already. Talal? Uh, Talara. Talara. Talara? Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. This whole thing's being run by T'Pol, <clears throat> supposedly. This whole thing's being yeah. run by a Vulcan who's on his ship. And yet yeah. he's under the impression that he's working for somebody else. For whom does he think he's working? Or does he know that he's working for her? Oh, well, there's, there's another level of intrigue. Well, I guess, except it doesn't get answered. So we just kind of have to assume that, oh, yeah, he thinks he's working for Steve. <laughs> <laughs> other Steve, maybe. Yeah, yeah we're right. just doing all kinds of callbacks now. Just all callbacks yep. all the time. Yeah. Oh, speaking of callbacks, oh, nice little tug of the uniform by Data after mm-hmm. he dresses down Worf. Nice little subtle moment. The Picard good. maneuver, isn't it? Isn't that the mm-hmm. Picard it maneuver? It sure is. Yeah. It sure is. Better than the Riker maneuver that uh, Data would just start straddling chairs as <laughs> he comes across say. them. That yeah. would have been much better. Yeah. Um, I, I, I mentioned it in the recap. I really dislike <laughs> the start of part two act five that galen switched the transponder codes i mean yeah but it's just a really convenient tech to tech thing that comes out of nowhere Um, you say the uh you say the writers had a little bit of trouble with this episode do you uh maybe i might have indicated that just a little bit Hmm. just a little bit all right um Oh, there's a little, there's a throwaway line that Riker has. I, I didn't even put it in the recap, but at the very end, when he talks about saving Picard, finding him on Vulcan in those caves, he's like, yeah, well, we were just scanning for your neural implant. And, and I was like, huh? What, your neural implant? Oh, I think it's the thing that um, Baran put on him. You, you sure? No. 
I'm okay. not sure. <laughs> okay. But since we've never heard of it before, and since we know that that's a new thing, that he's now, you know, linked in so it could totally, you know, kill somebody because of the whole pain receptor, you know, agonizer thing. Yeah. My assumption is he was scanning for that, you know, based on the one that they just took off of him once he got back to the Enterprise, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Now, you surprised me in your recap because I really expected a, you know, what did you do, Ray? <laughs> what did you do at the end, right? Because cause yeah. basically what Picard does is what Venkman does at the end of Ghostbusters is tell everybody just, you know, completely clear your mind. Or, I can't remember if it was uh, Venkman or Egon. It was Egon. Yeah. yeah clear your mind. Don't think of anything. And, uh, and of course, um, yeah, Dan Aykroyd thought of the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. I really yeah. expected the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man at the end of this episode. <laughs> <That> <laughs> just, just clear your minds, clear your minds. And then you'd see the four Federation people standing there and in the background. A little tiny Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. Oh, that would have been fabulous. Um, there is a really nice little moment at the end with Data and Riker. And, and here's why I like it. The joke is kind of obvious, but I have to give them credit. It's one of the few times that Data has played the joke without playing the joke. Well, you assume he was playing the joke. If next week begins with Riker and the Brig, eh. Then we'll know he's gone back to being very letter of the law. Please let that happen. Phew. I do not know about you, but I really thought that Captain Picard was dead. For about half a second. Kind of very quick question for you. Mm -hmm. Uh, A few weeks ago, Descent Part 2, you pointed out the one line in Star Trek that you hated more than any other line. <laughs> but in this episode, yeah. we have a variation on it. Okay, we had Deanna saying, I think I found something. Yes, the giant building right there. <laughs> but now but now we have Worf, <laughs> Commander, I found something. Right. I think we, we just redeemed it, that Starfleet uh, working again. Largely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah largely. Okay. I mean, part of me was like uh, behind the guy or was it the guy? Because that was the other weird thing. That shot mm-hmm. this is commander. I found something and I thought, wow, he found a yellow shirt, like scanning a thing. That's kind of, <laughs> that's kind of amazing. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was, I, I could not help but think about that, especially because I went a little. Um, yeah, I, I had a little trouble with that line. A you few were a little ago. upset. By People that, may yeah. remember. Yeah. Well, right. upset's a strong word. And yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So I got a question about Worf, speaking of Worf and his use of that line, his redemption, if you will, of that line. Do you think Worf's insubordination with Data had to do with Data being more cautious and more meticulous in his thinking than Worf would be? Or do you think it had to do with Data being a machine? Uh, You think it's a little uh, carbon chauvinism rearing its ugly head? Hmm. Really? Hmm. Because I don't think so. I mean, I, I wondered about it, but I really think it was just because. Oh no! I, as I, I was, I, I was posing that. As oh, you were question. asking. Yeah. yeah oh, you okay. Think it's carbon chauvinism, but you don't. Uh, you don't. Oh, I, no, I don't. I don't okay. think it is because. I mean, I really, I really do think it. I mean, hmm. What's the best way to put it? it I'll, I'll tell you what it reminded me of. It reminded me of the time that Data and Picard were talking about something, and they were orbiting a planet, and 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 Data said to Picard, "Do you want me to take the ship out of orbit, sir?" And Picard said, and go where? 
right? There was no place to go. There was nothing to do. And that was, I mean, you could almost say, I mean, I thought that was a little silly at the time, except I love the fact that the line was delivered. But you can actually say now that that's sort of a learning experience for data, because now, you know, it, it probably would have been, well, we know, in fact, it was Riker's you're feeling like we, we got to do something and I don't know what to do, but, but we got to do it. Right. Yeah. And, and I think, well, it wouldn't have been Worf as Riker's second in command. It was data as Riker's second in command, but I think uh, Worf would have been fine with whatever Riker did, but I think that's because Riker's got a full head of steam. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, data on the other hand is, is zeros and ones. He is, you know, really deciding what the best course of action is going to be, not reacting you know, with a course of action and then hoping it's the best thing to do. Right, right. So I thought that was kind of interesting. The other reason I don't think it was carbon chauvinism is because I love, it is the most emotional, non-emotion scene ever. And I really, I loved the scene between Riker, uh, between Riker, between Data and Worf in the ready room. Yeah. When Data like completely dresses Worf down, Worf, totally apologizes and then and you actually said you know that Worf was worried about messing up their friendship earlier it was actually were. data who well it yeah. was data who actually brought it up yeah. though like Worf's yeah. about to walk out and data says mr Worf, i'm sorry if this has ended our friendship and then the way that they are very matter-of-factly able to talk about i mean <laughs> without saying the words no you're important to me look i screwed up i'm sorry about that but our relationship is important to me, so if we can put this behind us, I'd like to keep going. It was, it was um, between a Klingon and, and an android, it was, a very human, um, it was a very human exchange, and I loved it. It was actually one of my favorite parts of both of these episodes, I think. I, I totally agree with you. I think it was a wonderful scene, and it was played perfectly. And then I asked myself, do I really need to see Data being a tough, badass commander? Because here's uh, why. Okay, well, here, here's why. So if we go with the premise that he is unemotional, and I know there's a debate to be had there, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, but as you said, he's a collection of ones and zeros crammed into a positronic brain in a metal and plastic body. Mm -hmm. uh, he's Gosh, purely, you make him sound super fine. <laughs> he's purely acting on logic. Then there's also just sort of a bit of programming in there that makes him turn on his big boy voice. And mm -hmm. sort of change his stature when he's in command. Now, not only does he shoot down Worf, he gives him the eye. He gives him the eye a couple of times before we have that scene in the ready room. Um, and by the way, this is all more evidence of why Worf should probably not be in command of anything. Um, yeah, but, well, uh, well, he'd be okay on a Klingon ship, I think, because then a lot of his hot headedness would be, you know, respected. In fact, he's probably a little weak for a Klingon ship, honestly. Yeah, he might be. Um, I, I will say, I think the reason you do need data, well, the reason you need data to be a, a tough captain or a tough commander is because it's not about what you need. It's about what the crew needs. I mean, mm -hmm. go back to what, mm -hmm. go back to what Troy said uh, to Riker. She's like, so we need to start playing the memorial. And he said, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to the memorial. And she's like, no, that's important. And besides, people are looking to you at this point. So he's watched Picard command. He's watched Riker command. He's watched Jellico command. Um, he might have even seen somebody else command at some point. I don't know. But, I mean, he's seen a lot of command styles at this point. I mean, all of those people that we just talked about command from a place of strength. And they command from a place of I'm not going to be questioned. We can talk about it. But if I decide, that's my decision. 
and that's how a ship stays together, right? Or at least in mm-hmm. the commanders that mm-hmm. he's seen, that's how it stays together. So, I mean, he's not Jellico. He's not just coming in and changing everybody's uniforms and changing the time everybody shows up and barking orders. But, I mean, he he... We've talked before about the structure of, of a quasi-military um, organization, which is not something either of us understand intimately. But, I mean, just, just based on the commanders that we've seen um, in Star Trek over the years, they, they, they can't let that kind of insubordination stand. No, absolutely not. And Data does absolutely the right and perfect thing by doing that. <laughs> it's the sort of the lead up into that. Data's... His whole physicality, his whole delivery changes. Mm-hmm. And and again, if it is just watching other commanders, then, then that's interesting. The data has learned something about command also being sort of just about presentation, about mm-hmm. how you give an order, not just that you are giving an order. Right. Because the rest, the rest of the time we encounter data, he's the very pleasant, very affable guy sitting behind that console taking orders but then when he's given the chance to actually give orders there's something in him that changes so there is something learned about what command is and it's different from all the other versions of data that we've seen except for data you know having his mind taken over by lore or whomever well i would actually argue i mean you do also have data under jellico Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, there's the different color uh, outfits, of course, the but there's also, yeah. right. But then there's also, you know, yelling captain on the bridge every time Jellico came back on the bridge, which I yeah. assume was, you know, based on orders. But I mean, he does change as do us, as do we all. Hopefully he does change a bit based on the situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, what, what's the phrase? Heavy is the head that wears the crown. Yeah. <laughs> he, he can't, he can't be the guy who like stumbles through things anymore. And he can't be the guy who doesn't understand the finger puzzle. He's got yeah, to be right. the guy who's leading a thousand people where the heck ever, because they're for all intents and purposes off duty at this point. They just have sort of a vague mission of they got to go back and get their people. But see, then that, that's where it becomes interesting, though. You said he's not the guy who can't figure out the finger puzzle. So is this a learned thing or is this a piece of programming that says, OK, now you're now you're running command subroutine one where now you get to act like the tough, badass leader? Uh, well, aren't we all? Or, or, yes, yes, we are. Yes, we are. But let, let's talk about a different form of leadership, though. Baran. Mm-hmm. He's a terrible leader. Yes. I, I mean, he just, he gets the wool pulled over his eyes over and over again. And obviously, some of this is written for the audience because the audience is in the shoes of Riker and Picard. So they're the ones figuring out how to get one up on Baran. Um, and, and maybe, maybe Baran, maybe he just trusts a little too much. I mean, trust is a virtue, but this is not working out for him or anyone else. <laughs> I would, well, I would argue that Baran is not a leader. He's no. a, he's a bully with his finger a on a button. Yep. Right. I mean, yep. he's a guy, he's a guy with a gun. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's, that's who Baran is. So when you say he's no kind of leader, you are absolutely right. Yeah. In fact, what did he say? He said that the the problem with the last guy was the last guy trusted him too much. Oh, right. He didn't, yeah. didn't exercise enough discipline with Baran. Yeah. I mean, Baran. Yeah, he's a he's a he's not even a leader. He's just in charge, which mm-hmm. is um, maybe a ah, a fine distinction, but a distinction nonetheless. Um, yeah. I got a question. Yeah. How do we feel about the health and safety inspection ploy? 
that mm. data and uh, and Worf concocted, or that Worf concocted, and the data was like, mm, sounds iffy, but let's do it. I, you know what? Here's the thing. I, it's a bit of a stretch that data would go for it. It's a bit of a stretch that Worf would come up with it. But I know why we had to have <laughs> Worf do that. <laughs> Wait, you think it's a stretch that Worf would come up with that? Because that totally seems like a Worf thing for me. Mm, really? I, I think Worf would be like, let's shoot it and then bring it in. You know? Well, okay, but he knows that that's not going to work. He's learned that through like five seasons. But now he's got this thing of like, okay, I need to be on that ship but there is no way that I'm going to be allowed to be on that ship. So how can I work the angle? Oh, why don't I pretend that I'm actually doing this thing? And will that fly with my commander? When it, I think the most surprising thing is that it flew with, well, there are two things that are surprising. That it flew with data. And then that Troy went quickly from guys to, oh, you... <laughs> that look on her face when she tells Worf to go ahead or when he when Data tells Worf to go ahead and do it, she sort of gives him like this like 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 Data is an irascible child at this point. Like he's a kid who's just trying to stay up past his bedtime. And he is in fact violating the spirit of <laughs> Starfleet regulation <laughs> and yeah. of the Kittimer Accord for crying out loud. Mm-hmm. I mean, this mm-hmm. is the kind of thing that, uh, you know, in some other seasons, in some other stories, could lead to an international incident or an interstellar inc- incident. Eh, eh, but who's counting? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean, maybe it's obviously it's a throwaway thing because it takes all of two minutes of the screen time or four, I guess, if you actually count the inspection. Right. But I was really surprised. I mean, this is like. Eh. It, it struck me as dirty. Yeah. Well, yeah, it, it's, hmm. I was saying that the writers had a problem with this episode. Oh, were did you? I, did I, I say I that one I, time? I don't know if I, <laughs> uh, maybe I said I must it. have missed that part. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm yeah. sorry if I uh, didn't express that. Hey, uh, there is a line that I really like in here, though. Um, extremists often have a logic all their own ah such true words and and we sometimes come back to that with the premise of itic how itic doesn't tolerate intolerance etc it's an interesting uh uh way to deal with uh with stuff like that and and i want to ask you i want to ask you if uh it was a good idea or a bad idea to completely destroy the weapon because here's what I want to know. You know, the, the, the weapon existed for a couple of thousand years. Um, it, it granted in pieces that were spread out. Um, would Before they destroy it, does somebody take records of it? Do they do a scan of it? Is any information about it kept? And does destroying that, does it actually get rid of the problem? <laughs> I guess it depends on what you think the problem is. I mean, yeah. if the problem is there could be this, you know, psychic weapon that could destroy people, well, then at least you, you know, reduce that problem by one psychic weapon that could do that. But I assume that there's still this underground separatist, whatever, xenophobic isolationist movement on Vulcan. And, you know, maybe they'll just have to go back to conventional weapons or some other kind of ship or something. Um, no, it doesn't solve the problem, but it does end the episode. Fair enough. Well, that was something. Time now to see what we picked up from the gambits. 
favorites, John. Not one gambit, but two. You know what we actually forgot to talk about in this episode? Mm. What's up? We didn't talk about how many gambits there actually were. Mm, both they, of them. Well, no, there were several, though. No, I mean, because think about it. So, like, Picard goes undercover, so that's a gambit. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. Riker goes undercover, or, go, you know, plays against type, so that's a gambit. Mm-hmm. Uh, Data lowers his shields and lets them be mm-hmm. attacked, so that's a gambit. Lies to the Klingon. Yeah. Uh, lies to the Klingon, yeah. On and on and on. So many gambits, but we're going to confine ourselves to the two for this episode. Uh, Gambit Part 1 and Gambit Part 2, John. It's part of the show where we talk about the messages, morals, and meanings and seeing whether the whole thing holds up. Uh, we start reversing all that. Do uh, the gambits hold up as far as you're concerned? All those gambits. Uh, so this is <laughs> this is a big, elaborate, chase-the-object story with a lot of intrigue. And, and there's nothing actually wrong with that. You know, there are good scenes. There are decent surprises. Um, but now I feel like I've arrived at where you've been. Mm-hmm. It, it feels like we're marking time. Mm-hmm. So for fun, if that's going to be one criteria here, sure, I you know, there are many fun things in this episode. Does it really tell me anything? Well, not really. Maybe earlier in the run, this would have been a fun, light, breezy, undercover story. Uh, but we got that and we actually got it better with Deanna Troy in Face of the Enemy. Mm. So that was an episode that really showed character growth and was fun and moved along. This story maybe is slightly too long for a one-part episode, but it didn't feel like it really merited the two parts. So um, I feel the writer's pain in this case. Um, I do like how Baran is portrayed. Mm-hmm. He's the opposite of Picard's leadership. Um, he's still a strong character. He's still got a lot of presence, and he's still kind of full of this bravado. But you can tell he's just completely other end of the spectrum from what we know and respect about Picard's leadership style. Um, the episode may be kind of light throwaway entertainment, and it's really just all about the spy stuff. But it does have an enormously Star Trek message in it, uh, which we'll talk about in just a minute here. I'm going to say that, oh, you know, I I feel like I'm exactly where I was last week, where if it's a 50-50 chance, does the episode hold up? Well, this is produced well. It's acted well. But it does drag on a bit, and it does feel like we're marking time. So I think this time I'm going to say that I fall just a point on the other side where this one doesn't hold up. Mm -hmm. But But I say that, and I say that, with the feeling that I still watched this and I enjoyed it hmm. and I enjoyed many things about it, but um, I wouldn't rush to sit back down and watch this again. And what about you? Uh, I am also where I have been. <laughs> you say it had a Star Trek message at the end and we'll get to the messages in a minute. Yep. Even if it had a Star Trek message at the end, it was tacked on at the end. I mean, yeah, mm-hmm. I'm going to dance in towards it a tiny bit. I mean, the way Baran leads is no way to lead. In fact, I would say, again, he doesn't lead. He's just in charge. So, I mean, that's like a moral lesson, but that's a lesson that you could see on any kind of show around. The problem that I have is, I mean, like, if you're going to give me moral issues with which to wrestle, I'm going to wrestle with those, and I'm going to thank you. Even if I don't agree, I'm going to have fun doing that, Right. If all you're going to give me a story, then my only choice for this show is to wrestle with the story. 
and how it's presented. The beginning is just needless drama. Everyone in that bar knows that, as far as they know, Picard is dead because they all saw him get shot and they saw him get vaporized. But we got five minutes of the bartender going, oh, don't tell anybody. I'm not going to tell anybody. Maybe if you flirt with me, I'll tell you. And then he goes and talks over uh, to the guy. Then the bartender comes over again. It's like, don't tell them. And all that happened was somebody died there, as far as they know. But we got to spend five minutes on that. And and that pretty much sets the pacing for the entire show, it seems to me. Now, there are still Mm -hmm. things, if you don't mind going a little bit. I mean, it's not that there aren't moments. Because there are. I mean, Troy telling Riker, these people need you. But then, of course, Riker's response is, I don't care. Okay, that's, oh. (laughs) Right. right. All right. We do get to study command a little bit with what happens with Data and Worf. And again, we get to study it with what happens with Baran as well. And there's there's even a wonderful moment of Picard's leadership aboard the ship when he's Galen. So there's Baran laid out, and there's the agonizer controller thing. And Picard could pick it up and say, now you people listen to me. But instead, he destroys it and says, no, there'll be no punishment on this ship as long as I'm captain or as long as I'm leading. And uh, and and then they listen to him uh, to the point that one of the crew people who had been against him the whole time immediately falls into calling him captain. Right. So it's it's not a show. It's not an episode. Or it's, if it were an episode, honestly, then I might be on its side. But the fact that it's two episodes to deliver messages that – any single episode has delivered this and more. I would like for it to work. I like the design of the ship. How's that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like, yeah, I like, I like, like Baran's yeah. ship a lot, actually. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The exterior more than the interior. But as you pointed out, we've seen the interior a few times. Right. No, I just, I, I can't because it's two hours of my life that doesn't, that doesn't enlighten me. I mean, I, it's fine to be entertained, but then the problem is there have been more entertaining episodes as well. I I got to say no, unfortunately, as much as I want to say yes. But we sort of touched on a couple of messages there. Um, talk to me about a few more, sir. Yeah, well, um, there's definitely one in there that says step back and study the evidence. Uh, data does it to mm-hmm. Worf's chagrin. Uh, Picard definitely does it. Mm-hmm. And the, these are the people who are doing the job right. <laughs> these are the ones who are making the right decisions to not get killed and not do something hasty that we got somebody else killed. So um, I do like that. Uh, that little bit of uh, slow and steady wins the race. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also uh, think happy thoughts, <laughs> if I might someone up there but seriously the, the this episode is sort of like day of the dove from the original series and, and that's why i think it, it is this very tos very heart of star trek message um the best weapon really the only weapon against violence is to stop being violent uh maybe to quote another movie the only winning move is not to play and that is exactly what we saw happen at the end of Day of the, Day of the Dove, where you have Kirk and Klingons, and they're slapping each other on the back, and they're just laughing at that floaty little red blob thing to make it go away. You know, I love how impassioned and heartfelt all of that was, but I have to ask, and I'm going to, part of me wants to say I'm going to ask for listeners, but you're going to have to remind me too, Day of the Dove. Okay. Yeah, th- third season, you got a floaty little red blob thing in the Enterprise, and everybody is just, oh, they're so worked up, and there's so much anger. And at the end of it, you've got everybody in the engine room, and they realize that to make the floaty little red orb thing go away, that what they have to do is 
stop playing into fear and violence. So mm. you know what'll get rid of that? A good laugh. Okay. A good a good laugh. That's it. <laughs> Day of the Dove. They got to bring peace, and and they they have to be the ones to actually make the peace happen. They can't wait for something else to make that peace for them. No, no, no. They just have to decide. Hey, we're going to try this now instead of the other thing. And just so there's no confusion for anyone, that's TOS. It is. Okay. It is. All right. Yep. Yeah. I'm I'm having real trouble, dude. <laughs> okay. All right. I hate well, that, but I'm having I'm having a really you know the problem. I'm seeing the uh, I'm seeing the um uh the logo from the episode with Dr. Tristan Adams because that's where you have the dove in the hand and so I'm yeah, I'm crossing circuit A to circuit B is what I'm doing. Right. I know, I know. Yeah. That that would be dagger of the mind. But don't worry, there's this podcast you can listen to where they recap the whole show. Oh, yeah? And then they talk about the morals, messages, and meanings. So huh. Look then, it up. I'll send you a link. Do they leave those up all the time? Could I actually start like today with the very first one? You could. You could. I, I've heard that people do that. Huh. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, I, I, the only ones that I could find are the whole rule by fear is no way to rule. Um, which, because again, and not to keep driving this home, but he's no ruler. Well, he's a ruler. He's no leader. Baran is no leader. No one is going to follow him if he's not standing behind them with the whip or standing in front of them with the agonizer. So, I mean, rule by fear or leading by fear is, is no way to lead. And um, I actually found it kind of interesting. Uh, Baran uh, always look a gift horse in the mouth. <laughs> right because yeah. Riker's there and he's like wow so you're like a really good captain and Brand's like yeah you know what I've learned by being captain if something seems too good to be true it might be and you seem really good to me so yeah. I'm gonna yeah. hold off on telling you all my secrets for the time being but we've actually talked about this before it used to be a gift horse was no big deal now you actually have to take care of a horse you'll be in trouble if you don't so <laughs> we probably need to stop saying don't look a gift horse in the mouth because might be the first place you should look. All of that holds up. I'm, I'm going to say it right now. It all does, especially <laughs> the thing about the gift horse. All right. Well, if you're going to say that, then I'm going to say Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer Rod Roddenberry. You know, uh, the Roddenberry like whole thing, I mean, there's so much they're into. They're into the Roddenberry Foundation. There is stuff that you can buy. And, uh, and they've got this podcast network. Uh, it's called um, the Roddenberry Podcast Network, oddly enough. Uh, home to such shows as Women at Warp, Priority One, and, of course, this podcast that you're listening to right here, right now. Podcast.roddenberry.com to check it all out. If you'd like to help support this show, uh, patreon.com slash missionlog is the place to do that. P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash missionlog. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM. That is Trek.fm. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit TrekMovie.com. On the next mission log, Phantasms. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at Warp11.com, and from the album Messages by Key Theory. Free to download at kitheory.com. Next time on... <coughs> Next time... Oh, it's time to change. <laughs> and transmission. Transmission.